Well, welcome to Front Range. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm the lead pastor. Man, we're so grateful uh, that you are here, whether you're joining us in person uh, or you're in the courtyard right now braving the, uh, the sun and the heat, or if you're watching online, we're grateful to have you. And our hope and prayer is that this will become a home for you, a place where you can build community, discover your purpose, and grow in your faith in Jesus. I want to let you know about two things that are happening this week. Uh, first, we have a men's retreat coming up uh, next weekend. Man, guys, if you have not signed up for that, you need to go. It is going to be awesome. There's so many incredible things we have planned. Uh, opportunity to connect with other men, to grow in your faith. Uh, I'll be there. A bunch of our other pastors will be there. And uh, if you're not signed up, do so today. You can go to frontrange.info, go to the upcoming events tab and sign up right then. So you can do it now. Uh, the, the last day to sign up is today. Uh, so by midnight tonight, we shut down registrations uh, because that's what the camp needs us to do. So uh, make sure you guys do that. And secondly, uh, if you haven't ever been to Next Steps with Front Range, we have that next Sunday. It's an opportunity to kind of come and hear about our church and uh, maybe uh, about the history and kind of where we feel like God's taking us. So if you're new or you've never been to that before, then we'd love for you to join us. We'll have food, childcare, everything taken care of. So there's uh, no excuses of why not to come. We'd love to see you guys there and uh, to make that a, a part of next Sunday for you and, and how you can get connected here at Front Range. Uh, I do want to address uh, kind of what's been going on in Afghanistan uh, like you, my heart has been broken over just the images and the stories. Uh, and so as your pastor, I'm asking you to do two things. One, I'm asking you to pray. Uh, I believe in the power of prayer. I know that so many times we think, oh, we, we, you know, prayer becomes like this minimized thing in our world. Uh, but I'm asking you to pray. Pray for three groups of people in particular. Pray for our servicemen and women, those who have served and those who are currently serving over there. Uh, I've talked to many of them this past week that uh, served over there at one point, and man, it's been devastating, devastating to watch what's going on and just uh, how it impacts them emotionally and mentally and all of that. And so be praying for them. Pray for the Afghan people. Uh, we think at times that our rights have been taken away. Try living there. Uh, try uh, the women not being able to go to school or have jobs or really anything. Um, and so be praying for them. And then lastly, pray for the church. Uh, the, the Christian church has uh, thrived over the last 20 years. I mean, it has exploded in Afghanistan. So many people have come to know Christ. It's been amazing. But now the persecution is back. Uh, and they are not only persecuting, uh, but they're killing uh, Christians, pastors. Uh, so be praying for them as well. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is pray. Second thing I'm gonna ask for you to do is uh, to give. Um, uh, if you wanna give toward Haiti or give toward what we're doing in Afghanistan, you just text the word HOPE to the number on the screen. Text the dollar amount, 10. If you wanna give $10 or 100 or 500 or whatever, and then the word HOPE, and uh, you'll be sent the link and it'll be super easy from there. Uh, we, uh, you already heard about how we're partnering in Haiti, but in Afghanistan, we're partnering with two organizations, one that is on the ground, uh, another organization that, uh, right here in our own city where they help uh, Afghan churches here. So they're helping... Now, the churches that are here in our community in the Denver metro area uh, to be able to help with refugees and family members and whatnot. So if you, if you see what's happening and your heart breaks, then my prayer is that you would be moved to action, uh, that we would pray and that we would also give as well. So if you want to partake in that. Now, with that being said, by show of hands, and it should be all of us, uh, especially after talking about Haiti and Afghanistan, how many of us would say our life, comparatively speaking, is pretty good? 
All of us, right? Kind of puts things in perspective. Now by show of hands, how many of you, even knowing that truth, that our life in comparison is pretty good, how many of us, our mind goes toward the negative at times? Like we have negative thoughts. Yeah, if you're not raising your hand, you're lying. You're lying about your negative thoughts because we all have that happen in our lives. The mind, the mind is a powerful thing and that's kind of what we're addressing in this series about winning the war in your mind. There's a battle that we all face and a few things that we've learn over the last couple of weeks, uh, most of life's battles are won or lost in the mind. Also, uh, the, the, our life heads in the direction of our greatest thoughts. And we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, they talk about how we have strongholds. We have these, these soundtracks that go on in our minds, like, I'm not good enough. Uh, no, no one will ever love me. I'll always be alone. I'll always be addicted, whatever it may be. We have these soundtracks that go on over and over, and it impacts everything we do. And 2 Corinthians says that the only thing that demolishes the strongholds in our life is a, a weapon that's not of this world. And that weapon that's not of this world is God's word. And last week we talked about how do you demolish those strongholds by using God's word. And it's been so cool to hear from so many of you. We heard from one father who said him and his family sat around the table um, creating their own statements. They used the statements that we sent out from me and created their own statements of, of truth from God's word about who they are. And so, man, they get it. Like they get it. So if you missed that message, I want to encourage you, go back, uh, listen to it. You can go to frontrange.org and get any of our, our previous messages there. Uh, but today we're going to go super practical. And kind of what we're addressing is how do you defeat your negative thoughts? How do you defeat your negative thoughts? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that your word addresses so much this, this mind and how powerful our mind is. I thank you for creating us in that way. But today, God, we ask that you would speak to us in a loud way, Father, whether we're sitting here in the room or in the courtyard or maybe on a couch or we're on vacation or whatever, God, you would speak to us in a powerful way, God, and help us defeat the negative thoughts that go through our minds, the thoughts that are opposed to you and your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, about 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I and some others, we started an organization called Bread of Life Mission, where we reach out to the unreached people groups of Kenya and South Sudan. And anytime you go to unreached people groups, you're going to a place where uh, most Westerners don't want to go. Uh, it might be because it's too hot or because the accommodations are terrible or whatever. And uh, one of the tribes that we go to is in South Sudan. And when we go to that tribe, we have to use a, a water filter that looks like this, that you stick this in into the water and you, you slurp through this like straw type thing and uh, there's a filter in it and every filter changes whatever comes into it. So a water filter changes the water that comes into the filter. And although you and I don't usually use a water filter on a daily basis, or at least we don't have to here in Colorado, uh, we do use an unseen filter in our lives every day that impacts the way that we look at situations, people, or experiences. You and I have this unseen filter and neuroscience calls this unseen filter a cognitive bias, a cognitive bias. And here's a definition of a cognitive bias. Cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking based on personal preferences or experiences. So it's a systematic error 
and the way that you think based on your experiences or your preferences. Let me give you some examples. I'm a, I'm a Georgia football fan. Uh, that's my team is the Georgia Bulldogs. And so every year, man, I think we have a chance. Every year we're gonna win the national championship and it doesn't matter what's happened in the past. It's a systematic error in my thinking because the last time that we won a championship was a year that I was born 41 years ago. God, please help us. And so there's no reason for me to think that every year we're gonna win it, but I do because I have this just this belief, this error in my thinking. Or another example, um, cat people. Uh, there's just a systematic error in their thinking. I don't, I don't know what's happened to you in your childhood. I don't know what you've gone through and the pain you've experienced that you would like cats over dogs, but that's a systematic error in thinking. <laughs> or... When I was growing up, my family, we were pretty wealthy. We, we had a lot of money and, uh, and then my parents got divorced and we went from having a lot to having absolutely nothing. And so I have this, this fear in my life that I can go from having what I have to absolutely nothing overnight. It's, it's a systematic error in my thinking based on my experiences. Now, cognitive bias, it's a filter and that filter shapes what you see and how you feel. That's what filters do. They change how you feel about something. Another example, here's a picture of Sarah and I, and uh, this was taken at Mother's Day, and she's beautiful, and I'm looking very dapper myself. And so when I look at that, I smile. I'm like, I like that picture. I give it over to my daughter, and this is what she does with that picture. (laughs) It does not make me feel dapper or smiley or anything like that. And that's what filters do. They change the way that we see things and how we feel. The cognitive bias is systematic, meaning it's pre-wired. It's why you could take two people and they can see the same thing, experience the same thing, and yet have very different responses to whatever the situation may be going through, you may be going through. And I see some of you husbands elbowing your wives. You're like, see, that's why. It's because of this cognitive bias. It's a systematic thing that happens where you experience something. And so you, the facts didn't change, the filter did. I mean, you look in scripture and you see this. In Numbers chapter 13, you have Moses sending the, the uh, 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And he's like, go check out this land and tell us what you see. And two of the spies come back. They're like, guys, we got this. Like God's gonna be with us. We can go in, we can take the land. We're good. And 10 of the spies were like, no, there's no way we can do this. Those people are like giants. And to them, we look like grasshoppers. Now, I'm pretty sure none of those 10 went up to any of those people and said, hey, what do we look like to you? Do we look like like uh, an elephant or a grasshopper? Like, give me an illustration. They didn't do that. What was it? It was their cognitive bias. It was a systematic error in thinking because of what they've experienced, what they've gone through. Two people, the facts never changed. Two people came back and said, yes. And 10 people said, no. Or David and Goliath, another good example. Everybody looks at Goliath, they go, man, he's, he's a, a champion in war. He's huge. He's this massive guy and he's won all these battles. And, and then David comes along, he's just a little shepherd boy. In fact, he's only there to provide food for his brothers. And then he hears this giant taunting the Israelites and he's like, let me go kill him. And you can imagine if you're one of the Philistines and you're on the side of Goliath, you're like, yeah, bring David on. We got this. And you can imagine if you're an Israelite and you see little shepherd boy David going to fight, they're like, we're dead. We're doomed. Like our our people, we're over. We're going to be slaves. And yet David's the only one that's like, man, if God's on my side, I'm good. I can do this because God is with me. It's cognitive bias. 
It begins to change how we approach situations and people and how we look at things and how we filter things in our lives. We all do it. And so how do we change it? How do we change the systematic error in thinking? Well, you change the cognitive bias by something called cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing. Let me give you the definition of that. Cognitive reframing is creating a different way of looking at a situation or relationship by changing its meaning. So you look differently at something or someone because you change the meaning of that thing. It's, it's understanding you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it. You can't control what happens to you in your life so many times, but you can control how you end up framing it. Now, don't, don't raise your hand on this, but how many of you have uh, had dreams of, of certain things in your life? You had a dream that at this point, maybe you would be somewhere in your life. You would be something. You would have something. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you thought, I, man, I thought by the time I would be this age, I would be married. I would have kids or I wouldn't have kids with special needs or whatever it may be. All of us have certain dreams and desires from our life, for our life. And I think all of us can probably say, there's at least one area of my life that I have dreamed for and I'm not there. And I feel very far away from that dream. If you've ever had that experience before, if you feel that way right now, the good thing is you're in good company. There's a guy by the name of Paul in scripture. And uh, Paul, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament, of the New Testament and the, and the Bible. He planted crazy amount of churches and, and raised up leaders. And he was an unbelievable missionary and all of that. And I think sometimes when we read stories about these people in the Bible, we think they're like some made up characters. And we forget that they're like real human beings. And so I, I can only imagine if we could go back and say, hey, Paul, what are your dreams like, what are your desires? I think Paul would say something like, man, my dream would be to travel the world and preach the gospel, to reach as many people for Christ as possible. I would love to plant churches all over. I would love to raise up leaders and all. I think if you were to ask Paul, what is your dream? I think he would say that. And yet when we pick up with a story today, he's the furthest from that place. In fact, right now he's sitting in prison awaiting to be executed. He's in Rome. Now, he's always wanted to go to Rome. We know that. We see that in his other writings where he's always desired to go to Rome to preach the gospel, but he's been brought to Rome as a prisoner. And so Paul, when he's in prison, he's writing these letters. And honestly, Paul's, Paul's a whiner. I mean, he just complains a lot in these letters. Right, let me prove it to you. Philippians chapter one, uh, it says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me really sucks. I'm done. This isn't worth it. I'm quitting community group, church, serving, all of it. I'm out. No, he doesn't say that at all. Like there's no point in Paul's letters where he's complaining about a situation. He's in prison awaiting to be killed. And here's what he actually says in Philippians chapter one, verse 12. He says, now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. They're like, man, I, I don't, th this isn't my dream. This isn't my desire. I, I never wanted to be in prison, but because I'm in prison, it's actually advanced the gospel. There's some great things that have been happening. Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Get the picture here. When he's in jail, he's chained to a soldier. That soldier has to watch him for eight hours, has to be with him for eight hours. At the end of the eight hours, another soldier gets chained to him. 
And so he says, it's very clear to everyone, to all the soldiers, why I'm in chains. I'm in chains for Christ, which means what? You're chained to me? I'm gonna tell you about Jesus, bro. You're gonna hear me sing. You're gonna hear me pray. You're gonna hear me talk about my faith and all of that. Who's the one in prison now? You know, like Paul sees this situation just completely different. Then verse 14, and because of my chains, listen to this, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul by himself can go preach the gospel. He can lead a lot of people to Christ. He can plant some churches. Paul being in prison has emboldened the believers to say, you know what, I can preach the gospel. It's on me to do this. What Paul's doing is he's, he's reframing his situation. He's looking at his situation and it'll be real easy for him to say, you know what, man, it's dark. Like this isn't my dream. This isn't what I was asking for. I, I never dreamt to come to Rome as a prisoner. I wanted to come as a preacher, but man, me being here has advanced the gospel in ways I, can, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, nobody wants to be chained to somebody all, all, all hours of the day. No one wants to, to have to go to the bathroom with somebody right beside them and to, to eat my food with somebody right beside Nobody wants that, but you know what? I'm telling them about Jesus and all these guys know why I'm here. You know, I'd much rather be out there preaching and traveling and raising up leaders and all that. But do you know that because I'm in here, there's so many people that, have, that, that are emboldened in their faith that they're now preaching the gospel. They're like, I could plant a few seeds, but now there's thousands of seeds being planted. What's he doing? He's reframing. The facts never changed. He was in prison. If I'm in prison, I'm going, man, why am I here? That's crazy. What I need to get out of here, what I need to do to get unchained from this dude. I'm not thinking about like presenting the gospel to him. I just want to get out of that situation because it's dark. And Paul says, it might be dark, but I'm going to reframe this thing. How do you change the cognitive bias, that, that negative that you have? You've got to have this cognitive reframe. You've got to not change the facts because the facts may not change about your situation. You've got to change how you look at them. So how do you Reframe. Let me give you three ways to reframe. Number one, practice pre-framing. Practice pre-framing. Pre-framing means that you decide where to put your picture frame before you ever walk into the situation, before you ever go into, before you ever experience that relationship or go into that, that situation at work or, or that moment at school before your kids go to school tomorrow or whatever. You're pract- if you have kids, you've done this with them. Right, a couple of weeks ago, my kids, they were uh, starting school. And uh, last year, we homeschooled them just because of uh, everything that was going on. And not only are they going back to school now, thank you, Jesus, but they're going to a new school that they've never been to. And so you can imagine like some of the anxiety and some of the, they're like, oh man. And so they're like, oh, I don't know, you know, am I going to meet friends and all that? What do we do? Yeah, you know what? It's probably going to be pretty bad. It's probably going to be the worst year. In fact, every year from here on out, it's going to be really bad. You're probably not going to meet any friends. You're probably not going to have fun. No, you pre-frame it. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it might be challenging. It might be, but imagine how much fun you're going to have. I mean, imagine what you're going to get, the new people, the new friends, and what we're doing. We're pre-framing the situation. My daughter comes home the first day, and she's like, I don't like this kid in my class. You know, he's annoying. He talks so much. Like, it sounds like me. Like, I, what, are you, what are you upset about? And actually, it sounds like her too. And so she's like complaining. I'm like, but imagine what you can learn from this kid. Imagine the things that, that made the stories that he might have. Or, you know, one day he might actually become a really good friend of yours. So don't count him out just yet. What are we doing? We're pre-framing this relationship. 
Wyatt comes home the, the second day and he says, dad, I get to teach the kindergartners on Thursday. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, what are you, you going to be teaching the kindergartners? He said, open mind. And I was like, oh, really? What, what's an open mind? He said, dad, let me, let me give you an example. Open mind is I'm not good at math. Open mind says I'm not good at math yet. My own kid is teaching me how to preframe. He's teaching me what to look, how to look at the situation. And so we understand preframing. The question is, do we do it? Or do we just go, you know what? It's going to be bad. It's just, oh, here we go again. We got more, more COVID cases on the road. We're going sh- to shut it all down. It's going to be terrible again. It's going to be, think about it. Some of us, we've gone there over the last few weeks. Oh, wait till this happens and wait till that happens. And because of our experiences, we have this systematic error in thinking. And so all we're doing is looking in the negative. All we're doing is looking at how dark it is or how cloudy it is or something like that rather than going, you know what? No, it's going to be good. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this thing. Everything's going to be all right. We're going to be, whatever it is, instead of, instead of putting the picture frame here and just going, ah, oh, woe is me and our world is terrible. Why don't we change it? Preframe this. So you have to practice preframing. The second thing to reframe is you got to preframe, but the second thing is you got to look for God's goodness. You got to look for God's goodness. Here's a truth. Here's a truth for all of us. You can almost always find what you're looking for. Except for the remote control, you can almost always find what you're looking for. Meaning, if you're looking for the negative, guess what you're going to find? The negative. If you're looking for the positive, guess what you're going to find? The positive. My wife, she's incredible at looking for stains and defects and food in my teeth and all of that, like, which serves its purpose before I'm going out in public. I love it because she'll be like, hey, you got a little something right there? And I'm like, I didn't see that because I'm colorblind or whatever, because I'm a man, whatever you want to base it on. And she's like, no, no, you can't wear that. Or no, you got something right here. And that's great. But if we do that with every relationship and every situation, if we only see the defects and the stains and everything we're going into, our life is going to be very miserable because it's impossible to have a positive life with a negative mind. It's impossible to have a positive life when you have a negative mind. You can't do it with every situation. So many of us, we interpret the goodness of God based on our circumstances. And we think, man, this is hard This is difficult, this is cloudy, there's storms. Where is God? Does God see me? Does God hear my prayers? Does God listen to me? Is God even good? If God was good, then why am I right here? And we base the goodness of God or the character of God on our circumstances when we should be basing our circumstances on the goodness and character of God. Meaning, yeah, man, this isn't the most ideal situation, but my God is good. My God, even though everybody else may abandon me, may reject me, may walk away from me, my God is faithful and he's not going to. And so his goodness and his, his character reframe our circumstances. We begin to look like if God is good, then no matter what I'm going through, there's gotta be some good right now. There's gotta be something in there that's positive. If God is faithful, then man, I don't know if I can see him moving right now now, but I'm going to look really hard because my God has got to be there because he says he'll never leave me or forsake me. It's seeking after the goodness of God. It's looking for the goodness of God. A couple months ago, I was at a, a pastor's conference and I was talking to a bunch of my buddies and we're just talking about this past year. And I heard over and over and over the same phrase, Ernest, this was the worst year of ministry I've ever experienced. 
Some of them going as far to say, this is the worst year of my life that I've ever experienced. And we began to talk about the church world and you know, when, when COVID hit and everything shut down, we all thought, man, are people gonna come back, come back to church? How's giving gonna be? And oh, will we even have a church when we come back from whatever this is gonna look like? And then when you began to think about you know, kind of having services back in person, some people said, if you have services in person, you hate people because you're just gonna kill them all. And other people said, because you shut down at all and went online, you must have no faith in God. And then, then you have the racial discussions. And I don't think there was a person on the planet who walked through that perfect. And then you had the the political divide and the mask and go on and on and on. And I'm not going to pretend like my field is any different than your field. In your field, you might have had a great year or it might have been just as bad, just as hard, just as dark. But even in your field, if it wasn't hard and dark, it probably was at certain points in your life. And this past year, it would be real easy for us to go, oh my gosh, it was the worst year. It was the worst year of ministry, the worst year of my life. It was so dark. It was so, so many clouds, so many storms. Where was God? But when you look for the goodness of God, you begin to reframe everything. So the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to work this out in my own life, man. How do I look for the goodness of God? So what I did is I took out my phone and I just began looking through pictures. And here's something fascinating that I learned. You probably never have or rarely have ever taken pictures of the worst moments, right? Like if, if, you've, if you found yourself depressed this past year, dealing with anxiety, sleeplessness, something like that, I'd very seriously doubt you took a picture of yourself in bed eating ice cream, crying, right? Like even though that might've happened to you, you probably didn't take a picture of it, right? We rarely take a picture of these dark moments. That's, that's one of the things I found out when I was going through my phone. I'm like, there's not a whole lot of negative there. So as I began walking through my phone, I began to realize the goodness of God, where the light began to shine through. And I found this picture of Wyatt and I and realized, man, my family and I, we got to do a lot of family time together. We went on walks together. And I took this picture because Wyatt is walking our dog, eating a sandwich and reading a book at the same time. I'm like, I don't even understand what's happening here. You're brilliant. <laughs> You know, and then, then I took a picture of this, uh, me watching a, a Georgia game, right? And they're winning, of course. I had to watch only the games that they won. But all sports shut down. I'm like, reruns of Georgia winning? I don't know where I get my cognitive bias from, my error in thinking, because, like, they always win, apparently. And so I'm like, yeah, I remember watching games and having replays and things like that. And then go to the next one. I remember drive-in services. If you were a part of Front Range, then, then you were a part of the drive-in services. Remember that time where we'd stand on top of a truck or on top of a trailer in the middle of a storm, and it was lightning all around us, and it was raining, and you guys would have your windshield wipers on, and somebody was like, turn your windshield wipers on if you're worshiping God. I'm like, no, it's because they can't see, and I can't see them, and I can't hear them. And this is awkward. Why am I talking into a microphone with a storm? Whatever. But it was good. And then we had drive-by parades and we would line up or you can see right here, there's cars lining this block. We're driving by an assisted living home because no one was allowed into the home. They weren't allowed out of the home. They were in complete lockdown. So we said, let's just drive by. Let's make signs. Let's honk the horns. Let's just get in our cars, wave to them, say, we love you. We see you. God loves you. And man, it was amazing. We did that multiple times. Remember that time. And then 
I uh, thought about hikes that we went on with friends that you got to just hang out. The things that we would go, man, I'm just, I'm too busy this weekend or whatever. Time began to slow down a whole lot in quarantine and you could do more things that maybe you weren't used to doing or uh, this is Sarah and I in our pajamas or, or at least the upper half looked like we were put together, but the lower half and this picture is unique because this was on Easter and this was the first time that I've been able to be home on Easter morning since 1997. And I remember that morning, I remember grieving, grieving that Easter wasn't the same, that I had to watch me on the screen for Easter. I remember grieving that. And then I look back at the picture and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember the grieving part. I remember going, man, I get to spend time with my wife and my kids and I can look like I've got it all put together, but below I'm not, you know, like that was awesome. And then later that day we had an Easter bunny drive by. It was really creepy. And I was super glad that we had to keep the six feet apart from one another uh, because it was really strange, but that's what we did. And then there's another picture of me watching another Georgia game uh, and they won that game as well. Again, I don't know where I get my cognitive bias from, but it's an error in my thinking apparently. And then the last picture is Sarah and I, and it was still in in the middle of lockdown and we only did messages online. And so we preached them from our house. And this was when Sarah preached a message with me. And I remember her saying, I'll never do that. I'll never preach a message with you. That is not my calling. That's not, don't ever ask me, Ernest. And I'm like, hey, since it's by a camera, no one's in front of you. What do you think? And she did. And I remember being so proud that she like took this step of faith and was willing to like do something. She said, I'll never do that. What were we doing? In the moments where it felt so dark at times, when you look back and you're like, man, that was the worst year of ministry or the worst year of my life or whatever, you see how God moved. You see the goodness of God. Now think about our church. I mean, a year ago, we're like, man, will we even make it as a church? And then, I mean, this year, in the first seven months of this year, we've had more first-time guests than we had in any year of our church, just in the first seven months. We've had more baptisms since COVID than any other time in our church. We've had more people come to know Christ in the first seven months of this year than ever in our church, ever in any year of our church. Now, if I'm sitting where you're at, I'm like, hold on, I didn't hear that. What'd you say? What'd you say, Ernest? Oh, okay, hold on, say it again. Okay, yeah, I'll say that again, weird guy in the front row. I said, we've had more first-time guests, more baptisms, more people come to know Christ. Are you kidding me? Like, what is the church gonna do? It's probably not gonna work anymore. People probably aren't gonna come back. Oh, wait, by the way, no. And lives are gonna be radically transformed and we're gonna see more new people and more salvations and all of that than we've ever seen as a church. Hey, I got you. I got you. Can you look for the goodness of God in your life? If you wanna reframe the story and the hardships and the pain, you gotta practice that pre-framing. You gotta look for the goodness of God. And then lastly, you give God thanks. You give God thanks. This is probably the area that God's working on me the most because I don't do this very well. Like after I pray a prayer and God shows up and God moves and all of that, like I kind of forget to circle the wagon and go, hey, God, thank you for that. This happens most when, uh, when I'm flying. Uh, if you know me, and I've said it from stage, man, I don't like to fly. Uh, there's a few pilots in our church, and I'll fly with them. But other than that, I'm like, I don't know where that dude's been or that girl's been. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do this. It's all a control thing. It's like complete, I'm a control freak. So that's really the issue. But before the flight ever takes off, man, I'm praying a lot. And sometimes while the flight is, is going on, I'm praying. And then when we land, I forget to go, hey, God, thanks. 
Thanks for getting me here safely. I appreciate that. So when you look back over this last year, if you want to do a little exercise, get your phone out, look through your pictures and recall the goodness of God in your life. And when you see that, man, everything wasn't dark, everything wasn't stormy, that there was goodness because our God is good, then give him thanks for that. And when you do, then you live out these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says, rejoice always. Not rejoice only when everything is perfect, but rejoice always because you can see the goodness of God. You can see the light in the midst of the darkness. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Father, we come before you and I thank you for the example of Paul. I thank you, Father, that looking at his life, man, I I don't know how I would respond if I was in prison waiting for my death. But Father, we see somebody who has such faith and such belief in you and your goodness and your faithfulness, not that you're gonna provide comfort and not that you're gonna even get them out of the situation, but that you are good and that you will move in the midst of the darkness. God, I thank you that the gospel continued to thrive even while he was locked away. I thank you that people were emboldened to share the good news because we are recipients of that even today. So Father, I thank you that even us, that as we can look back on certain moments, certain times, and as dark as it may seem, as many storms as it may feel like we walk through, we can see the goodness of God. We can see, God, how you showed up and God, how you moved and transformed and worked. And some of us right now in the midst of a storm, God, and we're asking for you to calm the storm. We're asking you to to get us out of the storm. But God, I'm asking that you would just show yourself faithful and good in the midst of the storm. In fact, if that's you, with every head bowed and eyes closed, if you'd say, Ernest, you know what? Right now, man, I'm in the midst of a storm. Or I see a storm coming on the horizon for me or for my family. And I want to redirect my focus. I don't want to have these negative thoughts. I don't want to be thinking about another lockdown and what's going to happen or whatever it may be or with my kids. Or I don't want to, I don't want to go there. If you'd say, man, that's where I'm at right now. And I want to reframe and be able to see the goodness of God. With every head bowed and eyes closed, just raise your hand. I just want to know who I'm praying for. Amen, amen. Hands everywhere, amen. God, I thank you that we're not alone. That God, not only are there other people walking a similar journey as us, even if the storms look different and the darkness seems different, there's so many of us that are in the same path right now. God, I thank you that you have never left us as well. That you are faithful, you are just, you are good. You promise to complete the good work you've done in us. You promised to bring good for those who love you and follow you according to your purpose and your plan. So God, I pray that you would just show up in our lives today. God, of course, we want you to calm the storms. Of course, we want you to bring comfort and peace and all of that. But God, in the midst of it, I just pray you would show yourself. Just show yourself good. Show yourself faithful because you are. May we look for your goodness. And we look for your presence. 
And God, may we no longer live by this cognitive bias. When we find ourselves falling into this, this systematic error of thinking, God, may we begin to see your word, your truth differently. May we begin to see you differently. And may we change our circumstances based on who you are, based on your goodness and your faithfulness, God. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.